We're continuing in our sermon series, looking at the life of Moses, and we're actually coming to the end of that sermon series today. Um, But before I read our passage, I want to introduce who's preaching this morning. It's Clyde Godwin. He's been a a close uh, friend of hope from the very beginning, and I've had the joy of being in a cohort that he's led us through this past school year, and it has been a a gift to me, um, and I've really uh, benefited from his leadership, his wealth of knowledge, and I'm really excited that he's um, preaching here this morning. So, um, yeah, I'm going to read our passage, and then Clyde will come on up and preach for us. Um, if you'd like to follow along, it's up on the screen, or you can read the bulletin. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, um, sorry, Negev and the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley, in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. For the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. Uh, Valerie and I live up in Winston-Salem, and uh, but we're big fans of Hope, uh, particularly Mark and Holly Upton and Matt and Jen Guzzi. Uh, but uh, part of the story here is that when Valerie and I were starting a church in Greensboro many years ago, I think it was 1990, uh, our first hire was Mark Upton. And I'm still trying to recover from working with Mark, and I'm actually in counseling for that, so you can pray for me for the time I worked with Mark. Uh, but uh, this morning, uh, before we come to the Word, we're going to pray together. And uh, when I lead prayer for listening to God's Word, I like to kind of slow down and get quiet. So uh, I'm just going to lead you through some prayers here this morning that will help us sort of center and settle and be still. And so we really prepare ourselves to hear Jesus speak. Um, So uh, would you just close your eyes and 
take a deep breath, and uh, I'm just going to let you sit there for uh, 30 seconds or so and just invite Jesus to, to be real to you today. Just quietly, I want you to pray for someone sitting next to you or if your whole family's here, that they can hear the voice of the Good Shepherd today. So pray for someone near you to hear Jesus' voice today. Jesus, hear our prayer. And today as we come to the Word, we want to think outside of ourselves before we come because what's here is gonna help us engage the world and be merciful people and be involved in this community and with each other and really just being aware of the great need that's all around us. And we wanna think beyond our country to the Ukraine today and we think of our sisters and brothers who are in intense suffering right now, living in fear of the hypersonic missiles that are coming their way at any time, drone attacks, uh, it's a land full of believers like us who've lost so much, and we just pray for your mercy. And Heavenly Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, please uh, work against the principalities and power, powers that are behind the attack of Ukraine, and we pray that they'd be defeated, along with Russia and Putin, um, that the plans that they have to destroy this country and your church, your people, would be defeated. And we ask that in your name, Jesus, for the Father's glory. Uh, then we pray for our country, Lord. May we live through another great awakening. May we live through another Jesus revolution where you pour out your spirit like you did. That's what Bauer and I up into a relationship with you in the early 70s, 80s. Uh, so would you send your spirit again to bring revival to our country, uh, we pray. Pray for all of those in authority over us here in Charlotte, um, the people who serve you in the, as police, as firemen and firewomen, and for people who are in administration, Lord, may the authorities that work here in Charlotte create a place where peace will continue to grow, justice will be served, and we will be set free to spread the gospel in word and deed. And so now, Lord, we pray that your promise that your sheep would hear your voice um, we would hear your voice today. This wouldn't be about me. It wouldn't be about uh, Hope Community Church. It'd be about your delight because your eyes and ears are always on your people showing up and speaking a real clear word to each one of us that today would be a day like no other where you meet us and change us for the Father's glory, we pray. Amen. In 2015, I remember running across this op-ed piece from David Brooks, and it really grabbed my attention because of his vulnerability, but also the way he was talking about eulogies. Uh, the title of the piece is called uh, Empty Buckets, or Bucket List, I can't remember, it's one of those. Uh, but he talks about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Um, he talks about how much of our culture is built around what you accomplish and what you've done. 
And so many people are driven by that. We live in a meritocracy where it's what you've accomplished, achieved, and you have that defines you so easily and quickly. And Valerie and I have lived up here in Charlotte. Uh, Valerie was, moved to Charlotte when she, well, twice, but in the eighth grade, she went to South Bank. So she lived in Charlotte. So I've been in and out of Charlotte a lot once we got married in 1975 at Sharon Presbyterian Church. Um, but I've been in Charlotte in and out uh, a lot over the years. But this is a city where it's defined by what you do <laughs> and how hard you work and what you accomplish and what you achieve. And what Brooks is trying to speak to in our culture is that so many people are swept up into that and addicted to it. And by his own admission, he says, and it's been me. I've let this define me. And obviously, he grew up in New York City, he's Jewish, a secular Jewish family, but he's accomplished so much, and he's beginning to come to the end of himself. Uh, it was during that time that his marriage of 27 years started to fall apart, and he realized that he was such a poser. <laughs> Um, so this morning, I want to speak to those of you this morning that are redlining it with your life and you feel like I'm not being who I really am. And if I'm just, you know, vulnerable, I'm going to say I'm a poser. I'm pretending to be somebody, but I'm really somebody else. And it's such a trap. And so the way uh, Brooks contrasts uh, resume virtues, he starts talking about eulogy virtues, about what do you hear people say at people's funerals, memorial services, celebration of life services, that helps you understand who they really were. Now, again, if this really grabs you, let me highly recommend Second uh, Mount, The Second Mountain People by David Brooks. He talks about people who've moved from being first mountain people, living for what they do, versus living for what really matters. It's a great, great read. It'll, it'll really pump you up. But uh, this morning, um, what we want to see here in uh, Deuteronomy 34 is the eulogy virtues of Moses. Now, we're at the end of Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Pentateuch. Uh, we believe Moses wrote that. There's lots of good reasons and scholarship for that to support that. But when we get to uh, Deuteronomy 34, who wrote this chapter? Because Moses died. <laughs> who wrote it? So that's a good question. And there's some good answers. And Moses had an inner circle, four or five people who could have written it. Most scholars think that it was Joshua who wrote this chapter. So that's the first thing to notice here uh, of what's going on. But if you've been following the life of Moses in this uh, series, uh, Moses, who, um, you know, the first 40 years of his life, he was somebody, grew up in Pharaoh's court, well-educated, luxury, everything, a son of Pharaoh. Uh, he was somebody. And then you know that he did some terrible stuff. He ran away from all that. He lived in the wilderness for 40 years, and he was a nobody. But God called him back into a relationship with him to serve him in the nation of Israel. And so Moses became somebody for God. But he inherited this rebellious, stubborn, difficult group of people that he was leading out of Egypt to the Promised Land, and they blew it. <laughs> and they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness, murmuring and complaining, and Moses loved them, led them, helped them, till at the very end, he's supposed to just speak to the rock and say, let there be water. But he is so angry 
that it, he's triggered and it's too late. And the next thing he knows, he's striking that rock. And because he disobeyed God by not saying what God told him not to do, he did it. God says, part of the discipline against you is you won't be able to enter the land. Now, for some of you right away, you'll go, it, that is harsh. That, is, that just fits this caricature I have of God, that he's like that. He's waiting me for to screw up, mess it up, do something wrong, and then I forfeit everything. Well, that's bad theology. Because <laughs> what's going on here is so beautiful in terms of what we're going to see about Moses' relationship with the living God. And there's more going on here. But here we come to this place where Moses gets to go and says the Lord showed him what the promised land looked like. Now, two things. One, if God was a loving God, he wouldn't have done that. Uh, was not a loving God, he would not have done that. And the other thing, you can imagine Moses going, but yeah, God wants to show me the promised land, but I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go see it because I'm mad that he is disciplining me because I had this one huge mistake. And so often we get caught in pulling away and doubting and turning our back on what God wants to do in us because we think God is being overly harsh and we really don't understand his heart for us and the character of what we've been through. And we're going, ah. But notice Moses goes. And it says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah. Well, you've got Pisgah National Forest near here. And uh, Valerie and I were staying at James Lake one time, and we decided to go hiking. And we didn't know how close we were to what we would discover. So we're driving around. We go down this dirt road. We see a trailhead, a lot of cars parked. We thought, well, let's walk up here. Next thing we know, we're standing looking at Lindell Gorge, which, like, I had no idea how beautiful that is. It's the Grand Canyon of the West. Is, I mean, it's just like staggering. So we see this language here of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And, and Moses gets this panoramic view of what the promised land is going to be for the people he's led for 40 years. This next generation that has been raised up. And it says the Lord showed him. And it's just, it's just so beautiful because the Lord showed him. And he says, basically, I'm going to get down here. Uh, and then the Lord speaks to him. But the Lord lets him see the promised land. And again, it's bittersweet because I know Moses must have felt like I blew it. I wish I could go. But God loves me enough to let me see what the promised land looks like. But then again, when we read in Hebrews this from Hebrews 11, by faith... Uh, this is jump into Hebrews 11, which lists all the people who live lives of faith. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Um, Moses because he spent a lot of time with God, with Jesus, we'll see. Um, he knows there's so many great things coming. He knows God is getting ready to do some amazing things, and he will be a part of it. So let's gonna just jump fast forward real quick. Even though he doesn't get to go into the promised land at this point, do you remember where he does get to go into the promised land during Jesus' ministry? And some of you are already there, the Mount of Transfiguration, who's showing up on the top 
to talk with Jesus about what Jesus is facing. Moses, <laughs> he's there. And it says in Hebrews 11 that he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. And here's the question for all of us. Are we looking for that reward? And the question is, what is it? But here's the next thing that we see in this sort of eulogy of Moses. It says, it says the Lord buried him. Now, again, this clues you into the character of God. I've had a chance to be with a number of people when they're dying. I've had a chance to watch people die well. And you can see Jesus caring for people in that hospital room, in that hospice room. You see angels there. You sense the presence of God. It is so amazing to see how Jesus shows up right at the end of people's lives. You know, I've seen people raise up their hands. I've seen people just have this incredible smile. I, I, I've seen a man, I was right in his face as he was dying, and just tears of joy. He was crying, but it was joy. There was so much joy because he knew he was right there in this liminal space of seeing his Savior. And it, so it says the Lord buries Moses. Now, obviously, he used people and all that, but Moses, I'm sure, knew, knew exactly that the Lord was taking care of him right at the end and then buries him in anonymity. We don't know where he buried him. Now, usually when you read the Old Testament, you know, we know exactly where certain people are buried. We know where the cave was. We know where the gravestone was. But for Moses, Moses was such a hero to the people of God. Moses knew and did not want people to come worship him. So I think it's part of one of these things where we could say, you, he wanted anonymity in his death, and he didn't want people worshiping him. Because as you read on here, he did some pretty amazing, cool, great things. And if it was not for Moses, like, wow. The thing that grabs me when you read down through this, though, it says that the people wept for 30 days. Now, normal law, normal law in the Jewish people is you mourn for a week and then you stop. You have one week to mourn for somebody. But the love for Moses and the grief was so great that people wept for 30 days. Um, the next thing that we can say is the way Moses loved Joshua. He laid hands on him and he set Joshua up for success. But here's the thing that I want us to see this morning and what God wants to invite you to and where Jesus wants to say to you, I really long for you to live this way. It says that here in verse 10, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Knew face to face. Um, when uh, Esau wrestles with the angel of the Lord, he says at the end, I saw the face of the Lord. Remember, he's wrestling all night with the pre-incarnate Jesus, saying, Lord, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And there are lots of other passages that we could go to because when you start thinking about this invitation to live face-to-face -face with God, face-to-face, -face, then all of a sudden it becomes like, is that, is that real? Is that realistic? Does my faith look like that where I have the sense that I'm having personal contact with the living God so that I really have a sense of I see him seeing me? So a good counseling question for those of you who like to help your friends and you want to help yourself this morning, 
Do you see yourself the way Jesus sees you this morning? Did you wake up, just open your eyes going, thank you. <laughs> this is so good, Jesus. I, you're waking me up. Another day. But when I think about, and my imagination kicks in, <clears throat> I go, Jesus, I am so in awe of the way you look at me. I am so in awe and so thankful for the kindness in your eyes, the tears when I need them, the smile when I need them. But the way you look at me takes my breath away. And it makes me want to say, when your eyes are upon this child, that's a great Keith Green song, you're so beautiful. And when your eyes are upon this child, I'm free. I am so free. Now, for some of you, this is really hard because you've never really thought about this. You've not let your imagination engage in this. But I want to invite you, this is a game changer. This is a day that you'll go, wow, on June 4th, <laughs> 2023, I got an insight into following Jesus that has changed my whole story. Because Jesus wants me to seek his face because his face is on me. And so uh, we think about why we gather here. I'm gonna, rather than use the word the eulogy, we're here to eulogize Jesus here, but I'm going to use the word Tolkien created called the eucatastrophe. And uh, here's the definition of that word. So when you think about seeing Jesus' face, we're going to swing back here in just a second, so stay with me. But here's the definition for that eucatastrophe. It says, in essence, a eucatastrophe is a massive turn in fortune from a seemingly unconquerable situation to an unforeseen victory, usually brought by grace rather than heroic effort. You see, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, humbled himself and became obedient to the place of death. He died in our place, in my place, and that, the reason he did that was for joy. The joy that he would find in seeing my face light up when I see his face. He humbled himself. He took upon himself my sin he died in my place for the joy that was set for him because not only was he going to forgive me for my sin, he was going to release me from what shame has done to me. Now, when I work a lot with people, I coach people, I counsel with people, it's a real privilege and honor. And a lot of times people can own things that are not doing well. They can talk about their problems, their struggles, their failures, even their sins. And they're talking, you know, very, in, you know, very isolated ways. But I, could, but I always want to shift it and go, could you talk to me about how shame affects the way you see God seeing you? Again, because if we were to do the exercise right now to close our eyes and think about, all right, I'm going to, you know, we're going to have a privilege. You can glimpse into heaven. Jesus right now is being worshipped so beautifully. People are thrilled to be in his presence. They're worshiping him, and you're there, and you see him, and you see him seeing you answer this question. What's the look on his face? Is it blank? Is it blind? Is he saying, how did you get in here? <laughs> you know, what are you doing here? You keep saying you're sorry, and then you keep doing the same stuff. 
I've given you so many chances. You're so much worse than Moses was. Because, you know, you've gotten angry and done some stupid stuff and you're just, your anger's out of control. Or, you know, you just go down the list and all of a sudden, here's what shame does to you. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to make it. You're just, something is really wrong with you. Uh, one of the women that I'm helping right now is a ministry leader. She really struggles with shame. I her permission to share this with you, but so as a little girl, she's a very sensitive little girl, and uh, she had a sensitive conscience, and uh, she would go to her mom and say, Mom, I, I know I shouldn't have hit my sister. I know I shouldn't have done that. I, I'm, I'm really sorry. And her mom would say, yeah, you are sorry. You are sorry. Okay, so stay with me. What does that do to her? You start to believe that you just are sorry excuse for a person. That's shame. It says you're nothing. You're never going to make it. You're never going to be pretty enough. You're never going to be smart enough. You're never going to be strong enough. You're never going to be athletic enough. And so that just crushes your spirit. It paralyzes handicaps you. So when I say... Look into the beautiful face of Jesus this morning. Use your imagination. Uh, we've got six grandkids. We have one granddaughter who um, is all into unicorns. Uh, and so for her birthday, third birthday, she wanted to get, she's doing scooters. She wanted a new helmet. And Valerie found this helmet, which is a unicorn helmet, which we knew she would lose her mind when she opened that package and wear her unicorn helmet as she does scooter in Washington, D.C. As a matter of fact, our daughter Claire has said, uh, Dad, you just can't believe when she's with, on that scooter in our neighborhood, people will just stop and look at her and smile, you know? So I'm talking to her. Her name is Luca. I say, Luca, why do you like unicorns so much and she looked at me incredulous like you don't know the answer <laughs> you know? and she says she says papa because unicorns are magical when i talk to you about looking into the face of jesus this morning you don't need a helmet you need a heart that can believe that it is so amazing to embrace the mystery that Jesus sees you right now. He's way ahead of you and how you're responding even now. And he wants to love you through it and out of it. So you begin to say, like David in Psalm 27, Lord, you've said, seek my face and I will seek your face. So... What Jesus has accomplished for us, this catastrophe where he had to go through this terrible death for us to die in our place. But it says in Hebrews 12 that he despised the shame. He took on himself our shame. He heard the curses, the judgments, and all that, but he took upon himself to break its power. So you don't have to be ruled by your shame. Uh, you don't have to miss out on the joy of this side of heaven, seeing the goodness of the Lord in the land of living. And here's the really great big news here, because what Jesus accomplished means that you're in the promised land, you're always going to be in the promised land, and no matter what you've lost, forfeited, whatever God says to you, I will give back to you what you have lost. Joel 2.25.
I spent a few months up in Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, uh, as an interim up there and I just had a great experience. I got to know an amazing African-American pastor named uh, Brian Green, who's a pastor of Pentecostal Tabernacle Church there in Cambridge, leads the pa Cambridge Pastors Prayer Fellowship. And he wanted to get to know me and he took me out to lunch and, and he said, uh, Clive, I'm taking you to lunch because you need to know your money's not good in Cambridge. And I go, what? <laughs> We're going to do this more often. But anyway, he, you know, he just said, yeah, your money's not good. And he said, tell me, what, what has God been doing in your life? And I said, well, he's been showing me that even in spite of my mistakes, my failures, things where I've screwed it up, things I've lost because of my stupidity, God has given back to me so much. Joel 2.25. And he just went like this. <laughs> and then he got on his phone and showed me his website and said, look at Joel 2.25. Look at it right here. See what it says. And I go, wow. Wow. So, brother, if you could put that verse up here on the screen here from 2 Corinthians. I want us to end right here because I want you to see this invitation to what God has for you. Paul says this in the context of not losing heart. Uh, Therefore, we do not lose heart is verse 1. Now, why is that? Because he says, I want you to see... Whoops, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, I thought I had this first copied in my notes, but let me turn it real quick so I can see it with you. Hang on one second, because I don't want to have to look back. So... Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this amazing truth for us as believers. And, do, 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 almost there. Hang on. Um, it says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Um, so we're going back to the creation where God's going to call his people to uh, reign with him. And here's another beautiful thing about seeing Jesus' face. You begin to connect with the fact that he is revealing his face to you so that you can reign with him. One counselor that I really love, he says, we need to be trained to reign with Jesus. But you're not going to catch that vision or have it sustained in your life unless you keep seeking his face because his face is always there for you. But notice what it says, has shown in our hearts to what? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that means there's a mystery here. There is something that invites your imagination to say, what does this mean? And so I want to encourage you when you go home today, read Psalm 27, journal a little bit, but do this exercise. When I use my imagination to see Jesus looking at me, what do you see? What do you see? And then when you see it, for those of your parents, describe it to your kids. Begin to show your kids, this is what it means to see the face of Jesus. This is how I see him seeing me. And then, and then you're ready. But here's the promise, that you see the knowledge, you have knowledge of the glory of God, worship, freedom, joy, in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you're here today and, and you're not in a place where you, you've said yes to the yes of God and Jesus, and you hear Jesus saying, I want you to see me seeing you today. 
uh, will you ask Jesus to help you see him? That's where you start. Just start right there. And we're going to have a meal here in a second that if you need Jesus, come get this meal. It's a visual way to make your imagination say, oh, this is what it means that Jesus loves me this much. Um, there's a friend of mine who I knew years ago in Franklin, Tennessee, when we were there, and uh, she and her husband retired here to the Charlotte area to be closer to their family, and when she was dying, uh, we talked uh, often about what she was going through, uh, and then she would end the conversation, or she would say something like this, Clyde, could you sing to me, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and look full in his wonderful face? Would you sing that to me? And I would, over the phone, I'd, just, I'd sing it to her. There's a line in there that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look into his face and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Better theology is this, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world uh, will become majestically real in the light of his glory and grace. They won't dim out. You'll find a way, because he's a way maker, to show you how to live in this broken, fallen world and be filled with joy. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful this morning for the power of your word and how it helps us to be reminded that you long for us to long for you the way you long for us. That your heart is such that you are just so committed to making real to us the goodness of your glory and grace that you promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. And so rather than hearing you say to us because we feel bad about who we are and what we've done, you're sorry, you say, no, you're special. So help us to feel the delight of the Father this morning. Amen.